for those of you who don't know me, like Jen said, my name is Dixie Coffee. Don't fail me now, Benny. And I am thrilled to be here. Um, I have had the joy of spending a lot of times in the Psalms, and this particular Psalms I have lived my entire life through, and I will share some of that with you. Uh, but we are beginning a new study series. Normally, Richard is here to speak with us, and he does so over the video, but he's actually in Europe teaching right now, and so he left us a message, and I'm going to read that to you. One of the Bible's marvels is its capacity to shine a light on life as it actually is and all its hope and glory and all its order and all its disorder, pain and healing. Within the Bible, the Psalms have been described as the mini-Bible because they articulate all the major themes of God's larger story in the poetry and songs collected there. So during this season, leading up to Easter, we're excited to unfold some of these songs and poems together so that we might see how in the middle of life's many ups and downs and experiences, how Christ is present as our guide, as our Savior, as our hope healer, and our joy. One of the early church leaders wrote, while the entire Holy Scripture is a teacher of virtues and the truths of faith, the book of Psalms possesses somehow the perfect image for the soul's course of life. May you encounter Christ in these poems, and songs in the days ahead. This is not going to do very well, I'm not sure. I might have to do that. Yeah, I might have to do that instead. So Psalm 73 is a psalm of lament and of reflection. Uh, it was written by Asaph, and Second Chronicles 25 tells us who he is. He was a songwriter. He was a choir master. He had four sons who followed in his footsteps. And in this song, we will see our lives uh, played out. And, and I will test that today with all of you. We're going to start a, this short series, but if, if, Dave, if you will put up the message version of this, let's read it in the common language that we are more familiar with. No doubt about it. God is good. He's good to good people, good to the good-hearted but I nearly missed it. Missed seeing his goodness. I was looking the other way, looking up to the people at the top, envying the wicked who have it made, who have nothing to worry about, not a care in the world, whole wide world, pretentious with arrogance. They wear their latest fashions in violence, pampered and overfed, decked out in silk bows of silliness. They jeer using words to kill. That's called sarcasm. They bully their way with words. They're full of hot air, loud mouths disturbing the peace. People actually listen to them. You can follow them on your phone, can't you? Yeah, all those stars. Can you believe it? Like thirsty puppies, they lap up their words. What is going on here? Is God out to lunch? You ever say that kind of quietly when you're going through really despair and deep things in life? God out to lunch? Nobody's tending the store. The wicked get by with everything. They have it made. Piling up riches. I've been stupid to play by the rules. What's it gotten me? A long run of bad luck. That's what. A slap in the face every time I walk out the door. If I'd given in and talked like this, though, I would have betrayed your dear children, Lord. Still, when I try to figure it out, all I got was a splitting headache until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I saw the whole picture. The slippery road you put them on 
were the final crash in a ditch of delusions and the blink of an eye disaster. A blind curve in the dark and nightmare. We wake up and rub our eyes and nothing. There's nothing to them, and there never was. When I was beleaguered and bitter, totally consumed by envy, I was totally ignorant, a dumb ox in your very presence. I'm still in your presence, but you've taken my hand. You wisely and tenderly lead me, and then you bless me. You're all I want in heaven. You're all I want on earth. When my skin sags and my bones get brittle, God is my rock, firm and faithful. Look, those who left you behind are falling apart, deserters. They'll never be heard from again, but I'm in the very presence of God. Oh, how refreshing it is. I've made Lord God my home, God. I'm telling the world what you do. And that's what I'm going to tell you this morning, what God has done for me and what he does for you. So as we look at the Psalms, we know that first and foremost, they're poetry, aren't they? Some of them are songs. They're not hard to read. Often if you get the New Living Version or read in the message with Peterson's words, you will hear and see your emotions played out before the Lord. And you know, when we're not real rational and we're struggling deeply, it is that kind of poetry that we need. So what makes them particularly helpful is for people who are struggling, right? And it starts off so great, this psalm. God is good. And the first season of our life in your bulletin is life is good. You know those shirts with the smiley face on them? The t-shirts and the hats that say life is good? Life is good for two sentences, right? When the days, you know, you kind of sometimes feel like you're waiting for that other shoe to drop. Life is good. And then all of a sudden, things go haywire. The mountains, the trees will sing God's praises if we don't, right? But one of the foundations of our understanding of God is that God is good, that he's chosen us. He's never going to forsake us. And our view of God is that he honors those who honor him. He will give us rewards if we're good, right? If we go to church, if we do the right things, if we confess our sins, if, if we color within the lines, God will reward us. He'll never forsake us. He will remain faithful all our lives. But then just one moment here. What happens? Life is not so good. How does that happen? Well, maybe it's a phone call from the doctor and you got a diagnosis that you weren't expecting. Maybe it's a knock at the door. The men in military blue telling you that you've lost a son or daughter in action. Maybe it's a note on the table. I'm leaving. Don't try to find me. Maybe you've been betrayed. Maybe you have faced divorce, depression, disaster, disease. Any of those. Destitution. I don't have a dime in my pocket. The widow with the, the widow's mite. That little tiny piece of copper. I should have brought one this morning because I got one. The tiniest piece of copper. That was all she had. And yet God had been upholding her and called her holy. Mostly it seems like when we look on Facebook, we see rich people overindulging to the point of greed and avarice. Um, and so our second season is life is not fair. 
You ever hear a kid say that? Life's not fair. This isn't fair, Dad, Mom. Life's not fair. Why don't I have that kind of life? I've been good. I have followed the Lord. And I need to be blessed because God should bless me. Does that ever cross your mind when you see those people in the Academy Awards and the, all that, you know, kind of going up the carpet? And they're, I mean, it's their job to look good. They have servants everywhere. They even have servants who lift their legs in aerobics. I'm convinced of that. You know, I visualize aerobics. Although, I mean, I have friends this morning, and they're doing the 5K hot chocolate run. They're walking it to get to the hot chocolate. They're not running. Those are my kind of people. So um, what happens is we look at these people. They're not in trouble. They're not plagued. This should be my birthright. I'm a Christian. I want to be healthy and happy, and I know God will bless me. I know he will. In my Facebook friends, that would be John's Facebook because I don't have a Facebook account. So he shares with me, we have friends who just retired to Thailand. Now, she's 57, and he just turned 60. Already I'm bitter. Okay, and they're sending pictures of um, these amazing beaches and uh, Sri Lanka with their friends, uh, a little cute clip of them, you know, marching along the beach, and they're already tanned and sunburned, and I'm, poor me. And um, what happens is when we look at Facebook too much, we begin to feel either better or bitter. That's what comparison does to us, isn't it? When I compare myself with someone else, I can think, oh, I'm not as fill-in-the-blank as they are. If the fashion police are out there this morning, please wait until after the service to arrest me if my shoes don't match my top, okay? I feel like I should have something that they have, and I don't, and so now I'm bitter, or I have something that they don't, and so therefore I feel better. And we do it all the time, almost as natural as breathing. It is so unconscious. We walk in, we size someone up. In fact, if you've ever been to a job interview, they say it takes about four seconds for someone to decide whether or not they're going to hire you. Dress nicely when you go to a job interview. But it's so unjust. You know, here these people are. We have, they're scorning, they're scoffing at God. You know, I think, most of you, that we live in a post-Christian world. Do you not know that? We do. Even though we have freedom of speech... We have people who are so disturbed by what the Bible has to say that they are rewriting it and rewriting God in their own image. You know what I mean by that? Yes? Culture starts to inform scripture. We become cowards. We say God must not have really meant what he said when he said, and again, you can fill in the blank, right? No, he doesn't mean that. No. And we will reinterpret scripture and rewrite it until it meshes with what feels comfortable to us. Well, I have news, friends. Faith is not a feeling. Our faith is found in the unshakable, unshakable foundation of God and his word. When God says it, you've heard this phrase, when God says it, God says it, right? I believe it. And that settles it. You can take out the whether or not you believe it or not. When God says it, that settles it. And the word is our standard of truth, and it is the word to which we align our beliefs and our values. Is that right? This is nothing new. But if you find yourself pulled left and right by culture, take your thoughts, your feelings, your emotions, and align them to the word of God. If it doesn't make sense to you, find someone who can help explain it. 
because God's word is clear and the Holy Spirit works in you to make it clear in your life. But what do you do when someone who's been really faithful to God gets sick? And you and the body of Christ have prayed for them and they die. Or when someone you love is aging before your very eyes and Alzheimer's takes their life, like my father when he was 85. What do you do when you have disease? And God doesn't seem to be answering, but he heals the next door neighbor and you have the same thing. None of it's quite fair. It's a legitimate question, isn't it? Sometimes things just don't go as we want them to go. That life is unfair and life is difficult, as Scott Peck said in his book, The Road Less Traveled. Seems to be more our lot than the ease with which we would really love to live our lives. A wonderful example of this is uh, given by Max Lucado in his book, uh, that he's still in the storm. And he says that within our hearts, we have a window with which we see God. And at the beginning, it's very clear. It's like the windshield on the front of your car, right? It's crisp. We see God in all his clarity and love and his beauty. And if you've commuted at all on I-5, which I did for 35 years in professional work of leadership management development, 26 years for Boeing, five countries around the world, and five years with Providence Healthcare as their director of operational capacity teaching leaders how to be leaders. I went down that freeway more times than I can count. I swear I could have just, forget those self-guiding cars. My car knew the way, right? And all those trucks that got behind left many dings in my window. But when does insurance say that you get a new window? (laughs) Never. (laughs) Or close to that, right? Those dings have to be within this certain field of vision. And when it gets in that certain field of vision that it might impair your driving, then they come out with their little squirt gun thing and they'll fill the dings. Or if it's cracked, and if it gets cracked and you don't attend to it, what happens is it gets colder and hotter. The crack just starts going down farther and farther. That's happened to us in our faith. A pebble has hit the window and it's cracked. And again, that pebble could be any of the things that I have just mentioned, right? Maybe it happened to you when you were a child. Maybe a parent left or two parents left. Maybe you were abused. We can live in yesterday if we never take the time to get that fixed and get healed and let the Lord turn that into song and not bitterness so that we lead our lives with his joy and not with, oh, Lord, those memories are still killing me. Maybe you've been through divorce. Maybe you've been through an illness that still plagues you or constant aching bodily pain that will not let you go. Whatever that pebble is, it has left its mark. It becomes a reference point for us in our faith. And in that faith, we either stumble continually or the crack widens and goes farther down our windshield. And at some point... We have a choice. We can submit to the sovereignty of God and say, Lord, I do not understand, and I beg you to help me see with my spiritual eyes what you are doing in my life. That's where the body of Christ comes in to pray for you and encourage you. That's where the word of God, which is living and sharper than a two-edged sword, comes to encourage and lift you up, comes to take us out of our pity party and lift us up into the face of God.
it's so unjust, all these people, they're experiencing this. Why don't I get to be like that? Lord, where are you? That bitterness can consume you and it can consume me. Where is Christ in all of this? Well, Jesus said, when you have seen me, you have seen who? The Father. It's the Father in this song that Asaph, the songwriter, has been appealing to and discussing this with. Because later on in the Psalms, he said, if I'd said this out loud, I'd, I'd maybe cause someone to stumble, right? I would have dishonored you and your children. But instead, he says, I'm discussing this with you, Lord. And as he discusses it with the Lord, he says, all right, Lord, now I see. He goes into the sanctuary of God. He basically goes to temple. But interestingly enough, the word sanctuaries in the Hebrew is plural. And um, all of those who try to translate Hebrew, because some words in the Hebrew are not even translatable, will say that that could mean the sanctuary and its precincts, because this is... The Old Testament, right? We had a tent, a tabernacle, the temple. There weren't churches in every corner with Starbucks like there are here, right? Or it could have been that he had an epiphany, that God just appeared to him in his heart and his mind and his head. And he had his aha moment. Oh, wait, wait, I know. The same thing happened with the disciples. God, you're not fair. I don't get it. Where are you? So if you'd like to turn with me to Matthew 14, we're going to see a very similar situation. And we're going to read in Matthew, starting in Matthew 14, verse 23. I'll give you just a few minutes to find your way. So this is season three of our lives when life is upside down, right? Nothing's making sense. Everything I had hoped to be and do for God seems like it's kind of on the line. This is our crisis of faith. We feel deserted. We feel cast off. We're despairing. We're just depressed to the point of desperation. So through our cracked window, we don't see God very clearly, Let's see what's happening with the, with the disciples when their window gets cracked. Now, let me give you a little context for the, for the passage I'm about to read to you to say, they have just come in from the mission field, and they're followed by thousands of people. They're tired. They're hungry. And Jesus just fed the 5,000. 5,000 men plus women and children. He just fed the 5,000. Now, you would have thought that they might have seen God and Christ, but they didn't. In fact, their hearts were hardened. They didn't get it at all. So they're tired. They wanted Jesus, remember, to send these crowds away. Go send them to the nearest McDonald's or fish shack or something. Immediately, Jesus made the disciples get into the boat. Now, they're tired. They just fed 5,000 people. Their people are pressing the shore. They get into the boat. Jesus says, you get into the boat. And go ahead of us to the other side while he dismisses the crowd. I'll take care of the crowd. After he dismissed them, he went up to the mountain by himself to pray. Now, this most likely would have been at the end of the day, probably 4 or 5 o'clock in the evening. Storm clouds were gathering. When evening came, he was there alone, but the boat was already a considerable distance from land. Now, 
The Sea of Galilee is about 13 miles long and about eight uh, and a tenth mile wide. I know I've been on it. We had the privilege, John and I, of going to Israel a couple years ago and the joy of being out on it with Insight for Living, Chuck Swindoll's um, marvelous cruises. It was a trip of a lifetime for us. We've been married almost 30 years. We've been to Hawaii a couple times, one for our um, honeymoon and once for an anniversary or two. But we'd never taken a trip like this, and it was just, I could hardly wait. So to be on the Sea of Galilee was just absolutely the joy of my heart. And there were four or five boats out there, all with Chuck Swindoll, and they kind of um, tied them, tethered them together so that we were together. And we were there, and we were singing and praising, and I just could not believe where I was. And um, so then we'd finished with that, and we started towards the shore, and a wind came up. And it wasn't a stormy, stormy night like the disciples faced, but it was a strong wind, so strong that one of the boats was pushed into the dock and people were thrown forward. And they, those winds come up very, very suddenly. Any of you who've lived or sailed or been near the water, like we are, the beautiful um, water that we have here in Seattle, you know what that is like, right? This particular storm that came up was more like a hurricane or a tempest. And the boat was way out in the water, and the wind was against it. And they had been rowing. They started rowing, and the wind came up. Six o'clock at night, they started rowing. Do you know how hard it is to row against the wind? Could you do it for an hour? Two? Three? Four? Five? Six? The kind of waves that would capsize... Um, many of our boats are in Puget Sound today. They wrote and they wrote, surely Jesus would come and he didn't come. They cried out to God. There was no, you know, calm, well, what do you think? You know, anybody learn anything that we could share? A verse maybe here that we could talk about, you know, while the waves are piling up on us? Where's God? The disciples weren't quite sure where he was. They still weren't quite sure of Jesus. They were ready for marching orders. Let's go take Herod. Let's go do some things. And instead they got oars. Get in the boat. And Jesus said, you're going to go to the other side. Now they should have hung on to that one phrase. I'll see you on the other side. But they didn't. Right? When did Jesus come, according to this? About the third watch of the night. Third or fourth watch of the night. You know what? You know what time that is? That's three to six in the morning. They'd been rowing all evening. They had been rowing all night almost. And he saw them. He saw them. How do you think he sees them? He's way up on a hill with his godly eyes. He sees them. And he comes walking on water. They were more than a little terrified. And you know what? That's where faith starts. When we're terrified. When we can't work it out on our own anymore. And we say, as it does at the end of this psalm, Lord, whom have I in heaven but you? Who has the words of eternal life? Who will save me? Only Jesus, right? Lord, if it's you, Peter says... Tell me to come to you on the water. Come. Come on, he says. 
Then Peter get, got down out of the boat, walked on the water, and came forward to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he took his eyes off of Jesus. He saw the wind. That's pretty scary. He was afraid and began to sink, and he cried out, Lord, save me. Save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand, and he caught him. And he said, oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. And then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. uh, The Sea of Tiberias, the, the Sea of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, these are all the same sea. So the disciples, after feeding the 5,000, missed that he was God. But what happens if we go back to Psalm 73? What happens to us when we put our eyes on God? The psalmist Asaph says, but when I went to the sanctuary of God. So the storm's raging. He is lost. We have had our crisis of faith. We're drowning. We scream. We yell. God is not there on our timing. We don't even know what to do. So if we simply are still before the Lord and say, Father, I am here, and I await your touch and your direction, he will come. Because the psalmist says, Lord, that it's your presence. In your presence, that's where I find your nearness. Because what does the psalm also say? He holds on to me with his right hand. That is his comfort to us. You and I may not feel what we would want to feel. And there are people who have very feeling faiths. And they feel God near. And they say things like, God is leading me. And, they, and you think, he's never led me. I don't know what that feels like. How do we hear God's voice? We hear it in his word. His living word. So if you don't think you've ever heard God's voice, I have a surprise for you. You have. The scripture that he brings back to you is here. Let me tell you briefly a Reader's Digest version or an abstract version of my crisis of faith. I will keep it very brief. You're welcome to talk to me about it later. But I will tell you that when I graduated with my Bachelor of Arts in English and didn't know what to do with it, I thought I could just read for the rest of my life. I have book lust, you see. Um, that uh, I had married, and um, we joined the staff of Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, during that time, um, I, I think what I learned most of all was that God was more interested in what he was doing in me than through me, even though many came to the Lord in my ministry and in the ministry of the team that I was with, first in Portland, Oregon, five years in Greeley, Colorado, and then another six years back in Portland. And then um, my husband wanted to attend seminary, and so I put him through seminary, and I went to work for the corporate world. And then when that was finished, we went to Judson Baptist College in Eastern Oregon, which folded because of financial difficulty. And so when that happened, then he said, I think I need an MBA to really afford to keep, you know, shoes on our kids' feet and so forth. And I had a daughter, a little girl at that time. And so we came up to PLU in Tacoma. And while we were there, um, he had an affair. 
uh, and left and abandoned myself and my then 11-year-old child. Now, I have to tell you, this went against everything in Scripture that I knew. I had prayed for this man. This was the man God gave me to marry. I learned later that I only knew my own heart, and even that was desperately wicked and corrupt. So when God did not come through and answer my prayer, which was according to his will, that my husband returned to me, what do you think I did? Oh, yes, I went to the Word, and I memorized it. I did not. I was beyond myself. You know how in Psalm 73 it says there was a brute beast? Think of raging bull. Think of Tasmanian devil, if you remember that cartoon. That was me. I was raging. Now, outwardly, I was very calm. I had to go to work every day and be a professional and teach other adults. So I had to adult every day. I had to show up. I had to look good, and I had to sound good. But inside, I was beside myself, beside myself. So what every good Christian does when God does not come through is to simply trust him. I did not do that. It's to take matters into my own hands. You ever do that? Disaster is sure to follow. I'll just give you that spoiler alert right now. Okay? Disaster is sure to follow. So I took life into my own hands and uh, went down quite a path of being away from God. It was not a pretty path. And some weeks and months later, I came to my senses because what came back to me, believe it or not, this psalm. Dixie, whom have you in heaven but God? And the New Testament, who else has the words of eternal life? I remember that day as clearly as if it was yesterday. I walked outside I went into a really muddy field that was near the campus where I was. I fell on my knees and I wept bitterly. Peter had nothing on me, nothing on me. Like Judas, if I'd had a rope, I think I would have hanged myself. I was so distraught and I thought, oh, dear Lord, your servant, all I really wanted was to minister. Um, I thought I had a charmed life. Believe it or not, I really do. Because God's record in my life is flawless. He had not let go of my right hand. Have you ever seen a child, if, you've, if you have children, and you're holding on to them, and they are squirming for all they're worth? You're holding on, and they're like, I'm going to get out of here. I watched this in the parking lot the other day, this little three-year-old, maybe two, I don't know. She just her, her mother had groceries under one hand, and she had the little girl in the other. She burst loose. The car was coming this way, and she, she ran, and her mom caught the hood of her coat. Not so fast. Snatch. That was what God did for me. He lifted me up. He restored my faith because the word of God was embedded in my heart and in my life. That is what took me back to God. I left that day with $200 in my checkbook, an 11-year-old child to feed and clothe, uh, living in an apartment. Um, My parents had retired from Boeing and were in Atlanta, Georgia, and my husband had just served me with divorce papers. I called my mom and dad, and they came home five days later and um, lived with me for about six months. My daughter was in a gifted program for sixth graders at that time, and she was failing miserably. She's a very bright girl. 
And they began to pray for us and hold us up. And I decided to put my daughter in Christian school because I felt she'd seen the travesty of the Christian life. And God began to build us and hold us back together. And later, five years or so later, I met John Benny at church. And the rest is a lovely history. You see, you can go from a widow's might. God will bring you through. It may not be the story you wrote for yourself, but it's his story. And when I yield my my ways to God and say, Lord, not my will, not my story, but your story, that is when I grow. Remember what I said earlier? Faith is not a feeling. It's not. It's, Lord, who else has the words of eternal life? I kneel before you. I come into your sanctuary. I come into your word. You mend my broken window. And so, Lord, in the disorientation of my life and all the voices out there, I'm going to stay away from Facebook. I'm All those images, all my family and faulty theology that we must quote all the time, like, God will never give you more than you can handle. Do you know that's a misquote of scripture? That is, God talked about temptation being that. In fact, um, Paul said in Corinthians, and, and Peter, it says, don't be surprised at the fiery trials that have overtaken you. It's a test. Fiery. Fire's hot. Fire burns. In this world, Jesus said, you will have what? Trouble. Tribulation. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Say that. Overcome the world. Right? So, Lord, if that's what you've done, the state of my heart in which I live, I can live in your truth and your goodness, or I can live in my faulty theology and be shocked when these things happen to me instead of saying, all right, Lord, take me through. A couple months ago, a friend of mine said, um, my husband just learned that he has prostate cancer. And I said, oh, no, that's terrible. She said, don't say that. She said, it's an opportunity for us to trust God. Okay. Okay, I won't say that. I won't say that. Don't think it's an illusion that God is not good. God is good. It is the truth. He is good. He is good every day, whether or not you or I experience it or whether we feel it. So after that third season, we have season four is an attitude adjustment. I'm going to carry my own weather with me. Thanks very much. It may be raining and storming in my life, and it has done that on a regular basis. I have been destitute. I have eaten off the food trucks and cheese trucks that came around because we weren't paid when we were at Judson Baptist College. I've had no money. I've been the single parent of a little girl with $200 in my checkbook, and God gave me a job. I've been depressed because difficult things have happened. I've had disease. I had breast cancer two years ago. And you know what? This body prayed me through it. I was a cork bobbing along in a stream. I had multiple surgeries. I had chemo. I had radiation. I had E. coli. I was in the hospital with C. diff for four days hooked up to IVs. I had no pain, people. I'm sorry to tell you that. I can't have a pity party over cancer. Instead, I took two Tylenol after every surgery. God was gracious to me beyond what I deserved because that's who he is. Because you prayed for me and you interceded for me and he lifted me up and he healed me. 
Now, whether or not he healed me certainly is his, his business. My mind and my heart were healed. So if you're wondering, I've lived Psalm 73. Maybe you won't have to. Maybe you won't have to. When this happens to you, that you might be on your knees before the Lord, you may be in tears. It doesn't mean that you're going to be happy all the time. Because God didn't, God didn't promise us that. We're so worried about people being happy. Guess what? He's more concerned that you're holy. He's more concerned that we align our hearts and our lives to his standard of truth. Because Spaceship Earth is going to arrive at its destination someday, and you and I are getting off. We will have won the final lotto. Streets of gold. That house that you see on Zillow. $3.7 million. One with a swimming pool. I saw that yesterday. (laughs) Just saying, John. Just saying. That's why I hope that always people give me a lotto ticket in my Christmas card. It's a buck for hope, people. It's a buck for hope. So uh, I'm going to carry my own weather with me. When it's rainy outside, um, I have the awareness of God's presence, the sense that God's there on the other side of the curtain, there but not accessible because of his holiness. That was the issue in the Jewish faith. That was the issue. Once a year, Yom Kippur, which basically comes around September 20th or so each year in our calendar year, Once a year, the high priest would go behind the curtain to offer the sacrifice for atonement. For us, we call that at one with God, right? Once a year. You and I can go every day, and we need to go and keep very short accounts with God. We need to say, Lord, search me and know me. Look at my heart. Let me, let me be sold out to you. But only once a year. Can you imagine can you imagine? The Jews that still observe that uh, today don't travel on that day. They make restitution with those that they can. They call. They do what they I, I had a, a, a vice president that I reported to at the Boyd Leadership Center for many years. And he was uh, of the Jewish faith. And when Yom Kippur, the day of covering is what it means, Yom Day Kippur, covering, when God covered the mercy seat with his glory and blood was sprinkled and they were forgiven. That curtain was torn at the resurrection of Christ. You and I enter into the presence of the Holy of Holies whenever we need to be on our knees before God, whenever we need to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me. This is spiritual warfare, people, and the slope of envy is very slippery. I just shared with you how slippery it was in my life. I looked at everyone around me. I, I'd been a good Christian. I'd been in the ministry. I'd led people to Christ. And look what it got me. John. Okay. <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. So life is eternal. That's season four. Life is eternal for us. That truth is even more clear. God has not just come into our midst. He's appeared as one of us in human flesh. So what do we find when we come together to worship, especially for the Lord's Supper today? We're reminded once again that God has loved us so much, so much, that he came in human form to give himself up for us. He suffered with us. He experienced all the temptations that we experienced because he's lived among us. He suffered evil at the hands of men and women. The psalmist doesn't know what we know, but he does realize that far from God, from being absent from God, 
as the wicked flourish and the righteous seem to suffer, he doesn't know that God is with us all the time. All the time. God's holding our hand implies his support, both emotional and practical. And Psalms 51.17 says this, The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. We don't have to come into his presence perfect or whole. We come as we are. We come broken. We come sinful. We leave that presence if we've actually gazed into his face, yielded our fickle emotions to him, and we come out of that. As it says in Ephesians 6, we have stood firm. We have armed ourselves with the word of God and the armor of God. His promises help us stand firm. John 16, 33, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Season four is life is eternal. Life is eternal. I want to see God. I want to live with him. It will be quick, this life of ours, quicker than we can possibly imagine. But his conclusion is expressed in that answer. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth I desire other than you. You know, there was a moment in Jesus' ministries when people drifted away. It was too hard. Remember that? They couldn't stand his teaching. I don't want to be holy. I want to live my life the way I want to live my life. So he asked the disciples whether they would like to leave him too. It was Peter who answered for all of them, Lord, to whom can we turn? You have the words of eternal life. We've come to believe and know that you are the Holy One of God. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever, it says in Psalms. Notice there's no sense of triumphalism here. He still struggles. His flesh and heart are failing, and he's thinking, this is too much for me to bear. I can't do this on my own. Well, I think it's something that we need to keep in mind, that if God's presence is with us always, perhaps he's there when we hurt. Do you think he is? I assure you he is. Nothing touches me that has not passed through the hands of my Heavenly Father. Nothing. Whatever occurs, God has sovereignly surveyed and approved. We may not know why. But we do know our pain is no accident to him who guides our steps. Everything I endure is designed to prepare me for serving others more effectively. Everything. Everything. Since my Heavenly Father is committed to shaping me into the image of his Son, he knows the ultimate value of this painful experience. It is being used to empty our hands of our own resources of our own sufficiency, and turn us back to him, the faithful provider. And God knows what will get through to us. He knows. Things may not be logical. They may not be fair. But when God is directing the the events of our lives, they are right. Chuck Swindoll, Insight for Living. So I will say to you tonight, this morning and, and the rest of today, God is good every day. Every day, God is good. And as our musicians come back um, to help us with worship, when you see someone who's been faithful to God and you say to yourself, why me? Or why them? It's a very fair question, isn't it? It's fair. 
It's unjust. It seems like that God is treating these people with total disrespect. I'm suffering. They're suffering. Sometimes, as we know, things are not fair. Things are not um, the way we want them to be. I did not live this life. I did not want the things that have happened to me in my life to happen to me. I really wanted compassion in a pill. And you know what? I comfort others with that which God comforts me. That's what it says in 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians. I comfort others with the comfort with which God has comforted me. Everything that's happening to you is so that you may serve others and minister to them more effectively. What is real? Walking with the Lord hand in hand. Walking with the Lord hand in hand.